Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Got a great episode for you. There's something about the Vikings, there's something about the Norse, those settlers, those adventurers, those explorers, those pirates, conquerors and traders, immigrants who came out of the frozen North and made themselves felt, not just of course in Britain Island, but further afield into Asia, Southern Europe and even North America. They settled Iceland for the first time, the largest island at that point in the world which did not have a human population. They traded across a vast area, bringing coins from Central Asia into the British economy, for example. There is something about the Vikings that people find extraordinary, and Wayne Bartlett has written another book about the Vikings. It has chanced me to ask the big questions. Who are the Vikings? Why do we call them Vikings? What do the Vikings even mean? Is it a useful term? And what do they do, not just in Britain and Ireland, but right across this huge hemisphere of, uh, of the Viking world? You can watch programmes about the Vikings, programmes about the early English, programmes about the early medieval period on History Hit TV. We recently followed a group of metal texturists and historians and archaeologists as they may have identified the site of the Battle of Brunnenburg, the mighty battle in the 10th century which saw Vikings, Northumbrians, men of Wessex and Mercia, the British, all fighting each other in a huge climactic battle which has hitherto uh, remained a mystery as to its location. So go and check all that out. If you use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, you can get six weeks for free. Check the site out. If you don't like it, don't have to subscribe. And also, if you go to the History Hit shop, you can buy a digital subscription and gift it to someone for Christmas. You're getting desperate. You're getting panicky. I know what it's like. You need to give something to someone. It's that time of year. The irresistible urge of the capitalist society in which we live is clawing at you. You can satisfy that urge by going to History Hit shop. Just Google it and give someone a subscription to historyhit.tv. It's a fab. You can give them three months. You can give them six months. You can give them two years. You can do whatever you like. So go and check that out. It's a great present. You're going to love it. They're going to love it. Um, and in the meantime, enjoy Wayne Bartlett and this fantastic chat about all things Vikings. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. I mean, I never tire of talking about the Vikings. And what I like about your book is you, you try and give it, you give the whole chronology. You're right, so right up to the later Christian Vikings, as well as, as, well as perhaps the more famous early, uh, almost semi-mythical ones. But let's start, really. What, what, the big question is, is uh, why does the world witness this explosion of seafaring traders, settlers and pirates out of the Norse world in the early medieval period? Where do they come from? That's a very good question. And uh, what's very interesting in the research for my book, I found that for several centuries before the Viking raids began, Scandinavia and the Baltic was still quite violent and there was lots of local raiding going on. So they didn't quite come out of the blue in terms of their origins, though it was only in around 793 that they started to attack the wider Christian world. So there was a tradition of raiding, albeit local raiding, and uh, that was allied at the end of the 8th century to several coincidental events, I think. Uh, first of all, seafaring generally in the Scandinavian world developed enormously during the course of that century. They could build ships that would go further than ever before and were more navigable than ever before. So they had a technological uh, kind of impetus there for one thing. 
And then we have the impetus of the fact that the 8th century was actually quite a, quite a wealthy century. There was an economic boom. Uh, lots of trading ports grew up on the coasts of what we would now call France and England and, and the Low Countries. Uh, so there was a lot of wealth around. And Vikings, particularly from Norway, who were somehow left, left out of this boom because of their geographical location, suddenly thought, hang on a minute, there's some available welfare. Uh, maybe they'd done some small-scale trading, so they kind of knew where they were going anyway. And all of a sudden they had this opportunity. They could see the ports were not very well defended and uh, there was an opportunity that they took advantage of. The Victorians had this kind of strange idea, didn't they, about, about sort of suddenly there was agricultural surplus or overpopulation or there was something going on within the Scandinavian world. Do, we, do modern scholars think that that's, that's not true? I don't think we can totally dismiss that. Uh, if you travel around Scandinavia, especially the coast of Norway, uh, the arable land is, is quite limited in scope. If you look at the geographical design, if you like, of Norway, uh, you will see lots of mountains and very narrow coastal strips where people could grow things. And, uh, you know, if, if you did have a population explosion, that would inevitably have some impact on, on the availability of land uh, and the need for to find somewhere else to, to grow things and, and to expand into. So I think the modern view is that probably we can't just blame it on that, but it may have been one of the contributory factors. Um, and then what does the word Viking mean and why do scholars get very upset or, or otherwise when you use it? Well, it, it's very interesting because there, we, we don't really know is the honest answer. There are several theories and perhaps the most, most popular one is that they're named after a, a, a Scandinavian word, Vik, which means a bay or a creek, somewhere where, where Vikings would moor up, but not particularly a convincing theory. Uh, and I guess the reason people get upset about it is because... Uh, at the time, they were called many things. They were called Vikings. It would be wrong to say that the contemporary accounts never talk about Vikings, but they mention lots of other words as well, uh, usually to do with their non-Christian uh, perspective. So they would be called heathens, they would be called pagans, they would be called Gentiles, and very, very occasionally they would be called Vikings. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't common, though it wasn't unknown, to call them Vikings at the time. We know, uh, you've mentioned the day at the end of the 8th century there when Vikings appear in Britain, but can we just actually briefly talk about the Viking expansion eastward for a second sure. into the Baltics and the great rivers of Russia and the Eurasian? Because only yesterday I saw a coin that was minted in Tashkent and was Absolutely. found in the northwest of England, Lancaster. So what, what's going on in the Viking? So talking about the beginning of that Viking explosion to the east as well as to the west. Of course, yeah. The, the very interesting thing is we think of Vikings as one homogenous group, but they were totally not that. Uh, and many of the people going east, not all of them, but many of them came from what we would now call Sweden. Sweden at the time didn't exist, but that area we call Sweden, this is where they were coming from. And uh, partly it's geographical. If, if you look at Norway, the natural way to go is west because of the weather and the tides and that kind of thing. 
On the other hand, if you're safely wrapped up inside the Baltic, it's much easier to go east. And then you have some very big river systems emptying out into the Baltic. Uh, things like the Dnieper and, and, uh, and, and other major rivers would link uh, with some difficulty. They would link to the Black Sea, to the Caspian Sea. So Vikings, particularly from Sweden, saw an opportunity to start trading there. And again, it's likely they were doing that before the traditional uh, beginning of the Viking Age. So, you know, there is, there is a lot of activity early on in what we call the Viking Age, which makes me think this was going on long before. And uh, I myself was in Samarkand uh, just two or three months ago, and there are also coins from Samarkand found, uh, found in England uh, and Ireland. And what was happening here is there was this massive uh, long distance trading network, probably with a lot of middlemen involved. Uh, so people would not travel from say Tashkent to Ireland, but they would pass on things to, to people who were intermediaries. And eventually those coins would end up uh, on the other side of the Viking world. The other thing to remember though, is the, it, the value of these coins was not so much in their monetary value, it was the fact they were made of silver and the Viking world treasured silver very, very highly. So, so more often than not, they were more interested in the silver content of those coins than the monetary value of the coins themselves. And that tended to be traded right across the Viking world. So the Vikings are taking their longboats into these rivers like the Volga and the Dnieper, which are much bigger. We've got to think about like the Trent the Dnieper, the Volga, these are little streams now today. We've, we've embanked them, they're like little puddles. They were giant rivers you could get Viking ships deep into. Massive, what yes. What is now Russia and Ukraine and stuff. So the, um, what are they, are they taking slaves from the Baltic? And or what, what are the, what, what's being traded by these Vikings? Uh, slaves were certainly a big part of it. Uh, and they, they really developed the, the slave trade enormously because they were able to move vast numbers of slaves around. We have contemporary accounts of 200 Viking ships full of slaves, which is kind of an amazing number, you know, maybe thousands of slaves being traded. But they were taking other things too. Uh, so they would be taking things from the Sami in the north of uh, Scandinavia, things like furs, that kind of thing, which were very valued uh, elsewhere. They'd also be taking uh, uh, Baltic amber, which again was very widely traded. So a number of things, but uh, slaves were certainly a big part of what they were doing. So that's to the east to get this giant Viking trading system. And, and they, maybe they stick, uh, one, one possible derivation of the word Russia is, is the Rus, the, the rowers, right? Correct, yes. And, and uh, it, in modern Russia, there is an ongoing debate between how influential the Vikings were in founding Russia as we know it. And uh, we find this often in Viking history. People get very protective about their own national history, you know, the part that the Vikings played or didn't play in, in their development. So we, we have an ongoing debate about that. So, so possibly played a, um, a role in one of the most important state formations of all time in Russia. So then, okay, so then we come, let's come west now. Uh, we got um, the Isles, Britain Island, France. What is, what's the what's the the Norse the Viking impact on on uh, those west, those Atlantic uh, polities? 
I, I think the Vikings had a massive impact uh, on all of them, but perhaps in slightly different ways. So if we look, uh, if we start at the western extremity, if we think about Ireland, uh, the, the, the Norse had a great part in, in developing the major cities or towns of modern Ireland, particularly Dublin and Cork and Limerick, but actually did not really uh, get too heavily involved in the hinterland, you know, the, the centre of Ireland, so they never really had a universal rule over Ireland. On the other hand, if we look at particularly Scotland and England, they had a massive impact. In some ways, uh, they, they gave previously divided people a common enemy to fight against. So if you think about before the Vikings came, we had six or seven kingdoms in England, uh, and by the end of the Viking Age, we had one country called England. And I think the Vikings played a very significant part in helping to unify opposition against them. But also, of course, they, they, they were heavily involved in contributing their own bloodline, if you like, to the development of England. And if we look at the north of England and the Midlands in particular, you know, they set up their own uh, kind of uh, culture there, which, which mixed with the English culture and uh, played a very significant role in developing that. York becomes one of the most dynamic Absolutely. cities in Western Europe because of the, it's a, pl a place of exchange between... Exactly, exactly. And, and the, the position of York in particular was crucial to the Viking uh, world in England and in Ireland. It's very interesting that in the, in the 10th century in particular, the Vikings who ruled York also ruled Dublin and vice versa. So, so maybe we need to turn geography on its head a bit. We think of England as one country unified but actually the viking part of britain if we can call it that kind of was more horizontal stretching across from ireland through the north of england and into the south of scotland what uh, the reputation of the vikings does it, does it come largely as the bloodthirsty pagans does it come largely from the fact that they didn't write the history books very much so um so, so we have to remember that the people writing the history books were normally the victims of the vikings uh, so pretty much the only people who could write back then were, were, were members of the church. So basically they were writing accounts of the Vikings attack, attacking their own establishments, hardly like them to, uh, hardly like to be objective observers in that kind of situation. Um, having said that, I, I don't think we should underplay the violence of the Vikings either. I mean, they're uh, looking at the evidence there doesn't really seem any doubt that they were extremely violent. But, but to caveat that, we have to remember, so were lots of Christian people at the time. You know. Yeah, I've been to Port Mahonic in the east ah, coast of Scotland, where that raid smashed yes. monks' skulls all over the place. Uh, so why did the Vikings, well, they come close to, defeat, to conquering England in the ninth century. Why do they not do that? I think the major reason that they didn't manage to, to conquer England was because they were divided themselves. If we look at the, the impact of the great heathen army uh, in the latter half of the 9th century, uh, eventually the great heathen ar army starts to fragment uh, and uh, they attacked England uh, pretty much as a unified force. But before too long, they were starting to have different objectives probably to fall out with each other, people were going off in different directions, 
and and that inevitably uh, I think weakened the impetus and also that the kings of Wessex at the time Alfred uh, and especially his elder brother Ethelred who tends to get ignored a bit in in history they, they, they ruled a pretty strong pretty coordinated state that was able to resist probably better than anywhere else in England did but still very close could easily have gone the other way uh, we'll come to the sort of curious and overlooked Viking conquest of England in the 11th century in a second. Indeed. But, but what, okay, let's talk about the things we don't often hear about now, the Vikings in, in France and into the Mediterranean. Sure. Um, so the Vikings were, were, were attacking Francia, as it was called then, which was really a combination of what we would now call France and much of Germany and the Low Countries, during the time of Charlemagne. Now, Charlemagne was a very powerful man, uh, and yet even he had to deal with Viking attacks. Yeah. They had the nerve, if you like, to attack his, his uh, coastal territories quite early on in the traditional Viking age. Um, and uh, basically they, they carried on those attacks throughout the course of the 9th century uh, with varying degrees of success. And then at the beginning of the 10th century, we find one of the French kings deciding, I'm not going to beat these Vikings, so I'm going to recruit some of them. So this is where Duke Rollo uh, of Normandy emerges, a traditional Viking uh, who gets given some land, uh, ergo Normandy, to, to, to kind of keep him sweet, and he will protect the French kings against other Vikings, which is pretty much what he did, you know. So so he eventually became a very significant part of, of France in its own right. And so but the previous thought the Vikings had attacked Paris, right, with with some success? Yeah, they attacked Paris on several occasions actually. Uh, so again they could sail right up the, the Seine, right into the heart of the city, basically. Uh, and uh, there were several major battles there, and usually they were bought off. Uh, this is one of the recurrent themes. Uh, the later English king, Ethelred the Unready, kind of unfairly gets, uh, gets, gets the credit, if I can call it that, for the idea of Danegeld buying the Danes and the Vikings off, but people have been doing it for 200 years before him. So we've got Normandy, Norsemen, you know, the, Nor- the Normans yes. now guarding the mouth of the Seine. How quickly do they, because this is now the argument, because they then invade uh, England, 1066. How Viking are they by that? I mean, how, how French they become and how rapidly does that happen? It's a very good question. And, and there's contradictory evidence. Um, in some ways, the way they carried on acting after they took over Normandy was very Viking. You know, they're raiding other countries, England, Sicily, many other places. So in some ways, they they are traditional Vikings in terms of their tactics. But in other ways, uh, they lost some of their Vikingness. I mean, the Normans quickly started speaking French. They they adopted Christianity wholesale. Um, So they were adopting that aspect of French culture too. And there's a very funny story, I, I think it's quite amusing in its own way, that during the campaign leading up to the Battle of Hastings, most of the Normans were scared to come over on ships, which is completely <laughs> the opposite of what you'd expect from Vikings. So contradictory evidence there. Uh, talk to me. Let's talk about the Mediterranean briefly. Was it Bjorn 
Ragnarsson, someone who goes into the Mediterranean for the first time and terrorises Italy and things. Yeah, Bjorn Ironside, um, uh, who was allegedly a son of the famous Ragnar Lothbrok, who might never have existed, but that's another story. Um, but we think Bjorn existed, don't we? we we're very, very confident Bjorn existed because he gets lots of contemporary references. And uh, he, he went on this extraordinary raid uh, with, with another famous but less remembered Viking called Heiston, who was around for about 40 odd years, so very much a veteran by the end. They, they basically sailed down after attacking France, after the first attack on Paris in the 840s. They decided, we go a bit further here. So they carried on exploring. They raided various cities on the coast of Spain. Uh, they even attacked Moorish Spain. Uh, back then, places like Cordoba were were big Moorish uh, uh, Islamic cities in the south of Spain. They even attacked those. And then they pushed on through into the Mediterranean itself. Uh, allegedly, not 100% sure, but might even have got as far as Alexandria. So really right into the heart of the Mediterranean. But it wasn't a total success. The the, the number of ships that came back was less than a half of those which had left. Uh, they, they didn't meet universal success even when they attacked cities. In Cordoba, many of them were captured and hanged. Uh, there, there was a story that there wasn't enough wood for, for gibbets to hang all the Vikings on, so they were being hung from palm trees. So it was a very mixed, mixed bag. Vikings aren't, they're not siege craft guys, are they? They don't like it. They don't like a big rampart. No, um, that, though, ironically, as time went on, they became a bit better at it. Um, what they did, I, I mean, they developed their own fortifications, uh, typically uh, D-shaped enclosures, they're called, because the straight side is on the river, and then you have walls around the other three sides forming a semicircle around it. And they proved to be quite successful in terms of keeping the enemy out um, but but they, they they did they they did lay siege to Paris later on in the ninth century there was a very very major siege which went on and on and on uh, and and eventually again they were bought off um, but they didn't really enjoy siegecraft themselves but they were very good at developing their own defenses. Let's talk about then. So that's the Med. Let's talk about going north or northwest. The last major island on the planet to be inhabited by humans, Iceland, which to that point was empty, we think. Uh, and talk, talk about Iceland, Greenland, and then Newfoundland as well. Ah, it's an extraordinary story. Um, and I think we just have to go back to the beginning of the Viking Age. They're almost like island hopping. So they go across, first of all, to places like Shetland and Orkney and the Western Islands of Scotland. And then they push across to the Faroe Islands, and then they push across to Iceland. Uh, and, and Iceland was their major uh, colonial expansion into the North Atlantic. Um, when they got there, it was a fairly fertile land. Uh, not so much now, partly because of the ecological damage they may have caused to the island. But it was, it, you know, as you say, it was pretty much uninhabited apart from the old Irish monk who allegedly might have been there, but we don't the really know. controversy, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, and basically, so there was a lot of room, that reasonably good climate, despite the name, 
Iceland, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty good land. Um, and uh, ended up as certainly their major North Atlantic settlement by by the uh, by the by the tenth century, maybe about one hundred years after they found Iceland. There's about sixty thousand people we think living there, scattered all around the island. And uh, and then Greenland was almost a chance discovery. Uh, somebody, in fact, a famous Eric the Red. Who, uh, who was really a bit of a rascal, even by Viking standards, uh, he being effectively thrown out of Norway and then thrown out of Iceland. So he ends up, he'd heard stories about Greenland, maybe someone had seen it before. And he goes over there and he starts this settlement in this wonderful new green land, as he calls it, you know, full of uh, wonderful agricultural prospects. Not true at all, at all, of course, it's full of glaciers and things, but hey, it's a way of getting people there. And then uh, maybe um, maybe 20 or 30 years after this, um, that they discover, probably purely by accident, uh, the outer reaches of North America. And uh, the chance discovery uh, was followed up soon after by a more detailed expedition that was trying to find out more about it. And in fact, we think there were three major expeditions uh, to to North America and to Newfoundland, which which set up some bases in Newfoundland and quite possibly beyond that. We don't know, uh, but one day, one, one day, day we'll find knows? it yeah. exactly. But um, but but basically, what the problem they have in North America, as opposed to Greenland and Iceland, is there are already people there and people who do not necessarily welcome them in with open arms. Uh, so they're surrounded by enemies, basically, and maybe because of that, there's not enough of them. You know, the critical mass of people, even in Greenland, was never more than two or 3,000 people. So you're not going to get large Viking armies going across to North. They're just not there. And so let's come back then to where they do, uh, sort of briefly... Um, take over, take over England. Having seen off the Viking threat under Alfred, Edward, and Athelstan, Athelflad, mm. that you know, um, Athelstan's aunt, uh, we then get this period of retreat again under when when Swain Fortbeard arrives. Yeah. What, why do we see this second Great Viking Age, this Great Viking assault on England? I think England itself was in a difficult situation at the time. It was very divided. Um, the King Ethelred the Unready. He was in fact a very long-serving king. He was king for nearly 40 years. So I kind of think in some ways he's been slightly unfairly painted as this completely useless person who never did anything good. I think maybe in the early part of his reign he was perhaps more effective than he was later on. But uh, England was very disunited. Uh, Ethelred really wasn't meant to be king. His older half-brother was assassinated probably with the involvement of his stepmother, you know. So, and, and really for the next 20, 30 years, we have a very dis, disunited England. At the same time, we have the, the powerful development of particularly Denmark uh, uh, under Svein, Svein Fortbeard and his father. Um, as, so, so basically, we have this, uh, this, this kind of unfortunate coincidence of events. Denmark's getting stronger, strong sea power, lots of troops 
England is slightly weaker, so everything happens at the wrong time as far as the English are concerned. And you get um, the Vikings kind of occupy the Isle of Wight, don't they, and use it as a... They do, they do. And uh, this was a classic Viking tactic, you know, to take an island uh, not too far away from your target. means no one can counter-attack you because you have mastery of the seas. And uh, they tried it on a smaller scale in other islands, off England and Ireland and in Francia. It's a classic way of the Vikings undertaking their their, their kind of campaigns. It would be a classic way of the British doing it in the 18th century onwards Indeed. as well, the, the, modern, the modern Vikings. But then, and then um, Fort Beard gets... Uh, there's a t- Edmund Ironside, Athel, Athel's son, fights Fort Beard's son. And you end up, we end up with Canute, who briefly has this great pan... North Sea stretching into Sweden, Viking yeah, Empire. Absolutely. It's a, a sort of course of history that could have absolutely. grown and, 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 yeah, a different present. Very much so. And, uh, you know, Canu was an extraordinary ruler. And uh, as you say, he, he kind of had this North Sea Empire. And, uh, you know, he even had what we would call soft power now. It wasn't, for Canu, it wasn't just the conquest, though he was perfectly capable of doing that. He also developed very strong alliances with the German Empire, uh, totally peaceful alliances. He visits the Pope. He becomes like a, a mainstream Christian king. He probably had very good relationships with the Vikings in Ireland, though, again, probably he never tried to rule them directly. So he's a very clever statesman as well as a warrior, capable of both, you know, and he's uh, very effective. I find it amazing that that it's the only time we've ever been joined in political union, well, I say we, it's the only time uh, that the whole of England has been incorporated into a union that also includes sort of Denmark and and Norway. We're so used to... Uh, kind of the, the European, so used to kind of Anglo-French, you know, that exactly. whether it's the Romans or or the Normans or Plantagenets, with with our with that sort of French to, to the southeast, but exactly. it's so interesting to the east. Yeah, the world's almost turned on mm. at right angles. You know, the the Scandinavian world, as I say, was almost a horizontal world in terms of its geography rather than its vertical nature, thinking about us being linked to the Mediterranean and France and, you know, it's a complete change, which makes Hastings perhaps an absolutely critical battle, certainly in British and probably European history. So 1066, you get Harold Gobinson, King of England, whose mother is Danish, William, Duke of Normandy, whose ancestors are Vikings, and Harold Hardrada, one of the greatest Vikings of all time, all battling out to be King of England. Exactly. And uh, it, it's, it's an interesting thought. I mean, one of the things which struck me when I was uh, researching Canute in particular a couple of years ago is that uh, actually we see the Battle of Hastings as an Anglo-Saxon versus Norman thing, but, but you could equally argue it was an Anglo-Danish army at Hastings. They're fighting, in many cases, with Danish weapons. So there'd already been a very big degree of assimilation in England even after Canute's bloodline dries, dries up in the early 1040s, the influence of the Danes in England was still very profound. Uh, the the Stamford Bridge is seen as the defeat in 1066 of uh, Harold Hardrada, the catastrophic defeat, seen as the end of the Viking Age in England. But actually the Vikings are flittering around the coast, worrying William the Conqueror into the 10... 
uh, 70s, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and in Scotland, obviously, you get this Norwegian presence in the Isles that goes on well into the Middle Ages. But so, when do you when do you bring down the guillotine on the end of the Viking Age? Uh, it's a very interesting question, uh, and I think you know my observations on that would be things like the Vikings never really end; they just morph into something else. You know, it's very hard to say. Okay, uh, maybe it, in my book, I I kind of arbitrarily almost pick. 1100 when a Norwegian king is killed fighting in Ireland but you know you have the Battle of Largs 150 years later as you say you have Orkney and Shetland still part of, of, of Norway into the 15th century and what really happens is the Viking Age doesn't really end but it morphs into something different we have Scandinavian kingdoms emerging uh, Denmark and Norway and Sweden which are really becoming mainstream nation-states, which in the Viking Age they really weren't. In the Viking Age, these states are just developing, and maybe this is one of the great contributions of the Viking Age, to evolve these new nation-states, which became part of the mainstream in Europe. So... What else? Okay, so what other we brought? The, what other legacy of the Viking Age endures to this day, would you say? What is that? What is that? Why do, they, why do they still matter so much? I think, in part, it's a human interest thing. They're incredibly uh, intrepid. Uh, they, they undertake enormous risks. and uh, But manage risk, one of the things I find interesting about the Vikings is they probably wouldn't choose to fight a battle unless they had a good chance of winning it. There was nothing wrong with running away. Uh, uh, so, so I think they were kind of pragmatic. I think that's also an attractive thing. They're, they're, but then, whilst we might see them sometimes as cartoon heroes, if you like, they're much deeper than that. They're, they're, they're kind of pragmatic, they're realistic, uh, and I think that attracts this duality of the Vikings. That attracts the interest as well. So they're capable of being horrific raiders, at the same time, they, they can be amazing craftsmen. Uh, they're very brave adventurers. So they're a complex mixture, you know, and I think that continues to draw people in, that they're not really one thing. I mean, you can't definitively say the Vikings were, were, were kind of awful raiders or, or they were wonderful craftsmen, and as if the two are, like, mutually exclusive. They're not. This is all part of the Viking world. So I think they're incredibly interesting, you know, in their complexity. Okay, last question that I forgot to ask you, but got to weigh in on it. Uh, women, shield maidens, did they exist? We've had lots of archaeologists talking about this recently. Uh, I think uh, if you follow the evidence, it's likely that they did exist. But it would be nice to have a bit more definitive evidence. But we found women buried with weapons, that kind of thing. Um, and there, there are some saga accounts. Uh, so, so on the balance of probabilities, I would say yes, that, that they probably did exist. My daughter will be thrilled. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, <laughs> hang on, the book is called... Vikings, A History of the Northmen. Brilliant. Go and buy it, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you.
hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you.